Good morning, church. Hello, Avery. Long time no see. We go back a ways, do Avery and I, and some of the rest of you as well. Once again, it's an honor to be here. I'm here with my wife, Kath, and we come these days. uh, Well, let's just say I came from the United Church of Milton. I am Jeff Cornwell. I had the honor and privilege of serving as lead pastor there for more than 30 years. And since that time in January of 2021, I retired. I've had an opportunity to come and be with you to preach here at least once now. And it's Tyler who's responsible for what has happened to me in the meantime, because sometime last fall, not just being here today uh, as a recommendation on his part, but the other part of what I'm doing now, I'm doing some work for, for Franklin County Home Health, and I'm working with hospice. And as you may know, uh, Tyler has been a hospice chaplain on a volunteer basis. And he let me know at the end of last year, and then in January, he said they're about to make a decision and you need to apply for this position. They created a new position that's part-time and uh, just about perfect for me. So uh, he said, you really need to apply for this. And as I did, I got the coveted position. So. I don't know whether to thank Tyler or blame him, but here I am. You know, as part of that, you meet some amazing people. And these are people uh, listening to your prayer, Brian. Um, You meet some amazing people who are coming to the end of life and their families, their spouses, significant others, and you realize that they're going through travail. They're facing imminent loss. And everything that comes with that, all the feelings and emotions that seethe, the questions that arise, the uncertainties, the doubts. What are we looking for? What can I hope for? And recently, I I met a man, a gentleman, and his wife has since died. But he asked a very difficult question as we sat down after her death. And he simply said, why? Well, who hasn't asked that kind of question before? Why? And I don't think he was really looking for an answer at that point, but it's a really good question, why? And he said, why Ukraine? Why do things happen the way they do in the world if God is really a loving God? If God really cares and God is God and can do something about it, why doesn't he? And then he sat back for a moment and we were both silent. And then he leaned forward and said, but you know, I still say my prayers. That was telling. And in that moment, I realized that the perfect scripture for him might be the book of Job, because there was somebody else who experienced intense and acute loss and worked his way through it, but refused to accept the pablum of easy answers. He wasn't satisfied with silence. He wasn't satisfied with cliches or the ordinary platitudes that people sometimes who are well-intentioned, they mean well, they wanna take care of us and comfort us, but they say the wrong things. And Job was one of those people who grappled with something deeper and he said, no, I won't accept the easy answers. I want something from God. And what he wanted was a hearing. What he wanted was an audience with God. Well, at at the risk of pushing it too far, You know, sometimes people do want comfort and they don't need explanations. I'm reminded of a story, occasionally I'll tell it when I have a funeral to do. 
It's a story about a dad and his little daughter, his eight-year-old daughter went off to school on the bus. And after she had left, unfortunately, the pet cat died. And the cat was quite old and they had had it for a very long time, but he knew that uh, when she got home, he would have to explain to her what happened to Fluffy. So while she was gone, he went outside, found a shovel, dug a hole, said a few prayers, and put the cat in its grave, covered up the hole and said, you know, I'll just leave the shovel here. And when she gets off the bus, I'll bring her out back and show her what I've done. And then we'll just say the Lord's Prayer together. We'll have a conversation. And hopefully it all works out. So that's what this father, this clever and wise father thought he would do. So his little girl, his daughter got home, got off the bus and, he, and she said, where's the cat? Where's Fluffy? And he said, well, I'm sorry, but I have bad news. And he took her into the backyard and said, well, this is where Fluffy is buried. Now Fluffy died, but you know, Fluffy was with us for a long time, had a very good life, and now Fluffy has gone on to be with God. And then his daughter stopped and tugged at his leg and she said, Daddy, what in the world does God want with a dead cat? <laughs> if that's the first time you've heard that, yes. You know, sometimes we think we need explanations. And all I can tell you is that God is not in the explanation business. What we really need, though, is comfort. And perhaps that's what that little girl needed, or the man who lost his spouse. And when we are in moments of loss, we need somebody to comfort us, not somebody to tell us why they think this happened. We don't need another opinion. We need to hear from God himself. So I'm gonna take you to Job, because this is a man who wrestled with loss. This was a man who was wealthy, a man who had everything, and then lost nearly everything. This is his story and the way that he responded. And I'm gonna exercise a, a preacher's prerogative for a moment. So uh, what's printed in the bulletin, I might diverge from that a little bit because as I go and think and pray and prepare, sometimes the Lord takes me in a little bit different direction. So if you're putting it up on the screen, I'm gonna go back to verse one here and just pick up a little bit of that to set the scene for us. So you won't see it on the screen for just a moment quite yet. Let us listen for the word of God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. He was a man of integrity, in other words. What does integrity look like? Well, this was man, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. So he turned toward God and away from evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So he was enormous, enormous, enormously wealthy. And his sons, they used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, according to the number of children he had. You see, this is a good dad who goes way above and beyond. He's so much invested in their lives that he does whatever he can to prevent them from stumbling into evil. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This was his practice and his habit. 
And now we catch up at verse 6, as you all are, are looking at the scriptures. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. These are angelic beings before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. You see, suddenly, we're transported into the heavenly realms. Now, Job doesn't understand this. He doesn't have, a, he doesn't have an opportunity to see what's taking place or to hear. And it's a good thing. Because uh, if he understood this, he would probably be very, very consternated. But we get an opportunity as readers to see what's going on at the 30,000 foot level. And then the Lord said to Satan, meaning adversary or adversarial one, from whence have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and walking down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. What do you think God just did for Job? Talk about setting him up for failure, right? I mean, he's painted a target on his back and you know what happens. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? In other, in other words, he's about to say, well, God, if you took your hand off him, if you didn't give him so much, everything, if he weren't your pet, do you think he would really respond? Have you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Why would God do that? Why? Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then Satan goes to work. And we read the story, the account of what happens. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking. And they were drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, and here we get the story of loss. It, one thing after another. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another, another messenger and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And just when you think it can't get any worse, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, oh no, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters, and now them. They were eating and drinking wine in, the, in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, a hurricane, a cyclone, and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. Imagine, in the midst of all that, he worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then the story continues just a little bit more. And I don't want to read the next portion here. 
But Satan came back and had another conversation with God, and it continued. And this time, God gave him once again permission to do something. And so Satan asked for permission to attack the person of Job. And so Job, he was attacked with boils. And so out of that, what we discovered is that Job um, is very uncomfortable. And at verse 7, I'm just going to pick up. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Hard to imagine something that painful and uncomfortable. And he took a piece of broken pottery and with him with which to scrape, scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. How is that for wisdom? Give it up. It's time to stop. You've done enough, Job. Just lay down. Lay down your life. It's over. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Great question. A rhetorical question that's not easy to answer. And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So if you all want to sit down. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come under the witness and the power of your word. We give you permission to have your way with us today, to have your say so. May your word, along with your grace, overpower us, overwhelm us, and set us on your path. May you be the one to direct our feet and to open up before us the path that you would present and set ahead of us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So I heard that recently, Tyler was saying, asking me, he said, what are you going to preach on? I said, oh, something out of Job, the whole book. And he said, that's great. Some of the men, I thought he said some of the men of the church, but maybe it was all of you, have studied the book of Job. So if any of you would like to take my place, you're welcome now. <laughs> Let me be the student and learn from you. But you know, sometimes life is the best teacher, and we learn. And we learn from experience in, in a way that you can't learn from a book. Some of us call it the College of Hard Knocks, but we learn. And it's not always comfortable or easy. I think we probably learn more when we go through difficult times than we do. When times are easy or good, we don't really learn very much. We think we deserve that. We just blithely go on our way as somehow as if we deserve that. And perhaps it is that we are blessed. But when things become difficult, that's when we stop and change direction. You ever notice a river flowing downstream? When it hits a boulder, it has to go around it. And that's when the water changes course. So when things become difficult for us, I think that's when we too are motivated to change course or to adjust. Well, I was listening to that gentleman in hospice who was saying to me, surely we deserve better than this. Well, I, I play tennis and I have a regular partner with whom I get to play. And if you know anything about the game of tennis and you happen to play the game, when your opponent hits a ball and it just nicks the top of the net and falls over on your side, whose point is it? Not yours. It's the point of your opponent. And my friend will just say, eh. And he'll, then he'll look at me and say, you deserve better. And I'm like, you're right. I deserve better. I still lose the point but I deserve better. I deserve a better partner. We kind of joke with one another, and you do that. You talk a little trash, have a little fun. 
That's what the sport is all about, testing yourself against somebody else, not because it's easy, but you deserve better. And I think that's a great way to say it. We deserve better. And Job deserved better as well. But I think every one of us knows in life, stuff happens. Things happen all the time. The question isn't whether or not bad things are going to happen to good people. The only question is, what are we going to do when bad things happen to us or to good people or people who want to be good and have good intentions? What are we going to do and how will we handle it? But we know that life isn't fair. Can you say Ukraine? Can you say Uvalde? Can you say Highland Park? Can you say, hey, I've been there too. I don't deserve this. No, there are things that happen to us that we do not deserve. But on the other hand, did you deserve a morning such as this? A beautiful morning, a sunrise, a beautiful sunset on those days where it's just remarkable? Do you deserve the opportunity? We are graced. Think where we live. Think about Vermont and being here the Green Mountain State? Do you deserve to be loved? Or more importantly, do you deserve to be forgiven when what you did wasn't very loving? So what do you deserve as opposed to what do you earn? We deserve better so much of the time. We really do. And Job's on track. Just ask Job. But what I really love about the Bible is it's not afraid to tackle the hard questions. It doesn't suppress them. It doesn't deny them but it wrestles with these difficult questions. It doesn't back away from the hard stuff, and neither does the God who has chosen and called us to himself. So what I love about this, uh, this tale of Job, about his experience, is that um, he doesn't attempt to hide from what happens, and neither does God. The Bible doesn't hide from the hard questions, but it's honest and helps us deal with the real stuff. And the real stuff is the stuff that happens when things ain't going right. I have a friend who says to us, when things are going wrong, they ain't going right. And it's the Bible that helps us deal with those difficult moments. When the wheels come off and everything go, goes wrong, and some of you have heard me say it this way before, when there's a knock at the door and there are two people in uniform and they say that you have a child missing in action in a foreign country, what do you say? When the trooper shows up at midnight, there's a knock on your door and they say, there's been an accident and you need to come. What can you say? Or your doctor calls and says, well, the test results are back. I need you to come in because we need to have a conversation. And you kind of had that feeling of dread coming over you. When your worst fears come to pass, when everything that you dreamed for, dreamed about seems to crash and fall to the floor in that moment, what do you have left? Well, perhaps you have an experience a lot like Job's. What are you going to do? The question isn't if these things will happen. The only question is what are we going to do, you and I, when they do happen? Because they do and they will. How many of you know that not a single one of us is going to get out of life alive? Now, that's not news to anybody. Sorry, if you're under the age of 12, if you don't know that, we bless you with a long life. And there is more to come. And that's precisely what Job is pushing for, more. He refused to let, refuses to let God off the hook. But Job takes life seriously. It matters to him. That's why he intervenes and intercedes for his children. Lord, please, I'm praying for my children. Protect them. But what we discover is that there are things in our world that are not under our control. 
And so our experience is often one of loss, and acute loss. It can be agonizing. And if Job ever understood that Satan was having this little conversation with God and they had a wager, I want to call it that, I don't think Job, I think he would have been even angrier than he was. And at first, we didn't read any further, but at first Job said, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and Job refuses to say much about it. But I just want to fill you in with the rest of the story for half a moment. After that, his friends came to see him. And I love their approach because when they came, they handled it brilliantly well. In those days, the habit was, the custom was to sit with somebody for seven days. Uh, in Judaism, they still do this. It's called sitting Shiva. You don't need to say much. You just sit. You just come. And you present yourself and you stay with them. Yeah, I get you something to eat, but you don't offer, well, you don't offer explanations. You don't try to justify God or the loss. You just spend that time with your person. It's the gift of compassion. It's empathy. I'm here. I'm with you. You are not alone. What a wonderful and amazing gift that is. But after they had been there for seven days, then Job finally, after the seven days, opens up. And this time, he's angry. And he refuses to accept no for an answer. He wants to understand what has happened. Why did this happen? Where were you, God? I deserve better. And the rest of the book of Job is all about the struggle to understand and explain that question and the response that God gives. So most of us know in our, from our own experience that life isn't perfect. And so for Job, he has a threefold loss that's absolutely acute. First, it's the things that belong to him. It's the stuff, the material wealth that he has accumulated over a lifetime. The camel are gone, the donkeys are gone, the servants are gone. And so um, that's bad enough. But he loses all his wealth in a moment of time. But then it gets worse. Then comes the loss. A little bit closer to him, it starts to become personal because it's his children who die. All ten of them gone. My seven boys, my three girls, gone in an instant. How would you like to lose all of your family at once? And that's what happens to Job. And so you can just imagine how difficult that was. Satan later asked for a second opportunity to have a, 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 a go at Job. And when he does, he's allowed to afflict Job personally. So now it's really intimate because he gets what, monkeypox? No. But he has a problem and it's acute. How many times have we lived through death with people that we love and there's nothing finally we can do? How do you comfort them? You can't make them well. God may or may not provide healing. It may or may not happen in this life. But what do we have left? We deserve better. We deserve better. That's the cry of Job. And in his words, I think we find our own voice. Lord, where were you? We deserve better. And God will have something to weigh in soon. But now it becomes personal for Job. You see, it's attached to his own person and he's feeling the pain. But what I like about Job is he doesn't take no for an answer. He refuses to settle for the easy answers. He's had enough of this, and he's simply making an observation that everyone knows. How many of you have siblings? Ava, Callie, <laughs> some of the rest of you? You know you have siblings. Does it sometimes seem like your sister gets more than you do? Okay, just checking. We call that sibling rivalry. We've all been there, those of us who have brothers or sisters. 
And sometimes it seems like the other one got a little more than we do. We're like, hey, what do we say? That's not fair. Or that's not right. You're right. It's not. But sometimes that's how life is. Parents have their reasons. They do. And if you would ask them, they say, look, I'm your dad. I'm your mom. And I'm not going to tell you. Just do what I say. They may actually have a reason, but they're probably, well, they might not feel inclined to tell you. And I think God is a little bit like that parental role. And he's like, Job, go ahead, say it, speak it, say what you need to say. It's not that God doesn't want to hear it. He's not afraid to hear it. But Job, and he allows Job the time and the place to say that. And this is that time. So Job, what I like about Job, some people may feel that he's not justified. But what I like about it, he doesn't take it lying down. He is not a victim. And he's not going to act like one. Hey, I deserve better. But what he does is what few of us do. He doesn't just complain to his friends who challenge him on this. Surely you must have done something wrong, Job. You must deserve this. You can't get everything right. And Job says, look, all I know is that God owes me an explanation. I have not deserved at this. I do not deserve anything. If this is punishment, what have I done to deserve that? And so he says, I'm taking it to the top. I want God to explain himself to me. You gotta like Job's approach. If you're gonna get an answer, he's not gonna take it from the preacher next door or the psychiatrist or Dr. Phil. He's going all the way to the top. I like it. Let God himself justify this and explain it to me why he did what he did. And so Job refuses to accept the injustice. And it's not so often that we can't handle uh, um, injustice or suffering. The problem occurs when it seems like it's undeserved. Am I making sense? When things happen like, hey, that's not right. You know, I understand it. If, if it's 95 degrees in a humid day, if you want to call that suffering, okay, everybody lives through that. But not everybody has somebody break into their house and steal what belongs to them. I didn't deserve that. No, you didn't. You do deserve better. So the problem is undeserved suffering. The issue for me is what one of my seminary professors used to say. He said, you know, God... Um, he said, theology is a lot like a donut. At the center, there's a hole. You ever notice that? There's a hole in the center with no explanation. And he used to say that there are two things that God doesn't do. Well, almost never. He hedged just a little bit. The two things that God doesn't do, he doesn't apologize and he doesn't explain. You see, I told you God is like a parent. No apologies, no explanations. Woody Allen, one of, uh, in one of the movies, uh, one of the characters he played said, well, about the most you can say for God is that God is an underachiever. Ouch. Job never goes that far. He simply wants some kind of explanation. Where were you, God? Where were you when my spouse was dying of cancer that my spouse did not deserve? Where were you? Or another way to ask the question is why and why me? What I like about Job, when his friends say, well, you must have done something wrong, and they try to offer easy answers. Well, well, okay, Job, but you know, may, maybe God needs your children in heaven to be angels. And he's like, what? I can't accept that. And so Job will not have a second opinion, and he finds his voice. He doesn't accept the suffering easily. You know, some years ago, you might remember somebody by the name of Stephen Hawking, and you might remember that Stephen Hawking um, was not a well man, 
But in the midst of all his circumstances, he talked about what was happening to him, and he was apparently unafraid. And even though he was, um, had a, dura- a debilitating neuron disease, and he said, you know, this was his conclusion, there is no heaven, there is no afterlife, that's a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Well, that's not my view, and that's certainly not the biblical perspective, but that was Stephen Hawking's. All I can think is, how bleak is that? But I have a question for Stephen Hawking. Well, why do we lament then? If it's meaningless, suffering is meaningless, happiness is meaningless, what's the difference? It doesn't matter what happens to you at all, does it? Why should we care? Why should we lament? You see, I don't know that he would have a good answer for that or be able to come back at me because they're both one and the same. If it really doesn't matter and there's no one in the universe to care, why should we? And you see, that's the kind of answer that Job himself would not have accepted. You know, years ago I read um, a biography, the autobiography of a man named Art Buckwald. Do you remember him, some of you? He was a newspaper columnist. Well, late in his career, he wrote a book about growing up and about his life. But when he was a little boy, he lived in a coal mining town, and his father was a coal miner, and his father was killed in a horrible accident. And uh, when he remembered, even as a little boy, about six years old, if I recall, that uh, people were trying to comfort him. But when he was at the funeral home, they would say things like, well, it's okay because God needed another daddy in heaven. He needed your father up there. And Art Buckwall, even at the age, said, what do you mean? God's got lots of fathers up there. Why did he need mine? He's got all those fathers. Why did he take mine? I need him more. And he said, that day, I decided that God, because of the answers that people gave, that God was not entirely to be trusted. No wonder a lot of people have suspicions about Job. What I like about Job is he's not going to have any of that. He's like, no, I want to hear it straight from God. Did I get it right? Did I do it right, God? Yes or no, up or down? You tell me, but I'm not going to hear it or settle for anything less than that. So Job keeps pressing in. Now in this world, there are probably, or is at least another, there are two more responses. And uh, there's a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, and she's written extensively on how we respond to suffering as human beings. And she said, you know, some people respond in in the way that Stephen Hawking did. They just kind of shrug it off and said, what are you afraid of? And there are others who take the Buddhist response, which means that you detach yourself. Yes, there's suffering in the world, but if you could distance yourself and withdraw from that and create an emotional cushion, if you don't allow it to affect you, then you can handle it. You'll be able to cope. And uh, that's the second response that she says is a present much in the world today, but she said, you know what? The one that I find most elegant is the one that we read about in the Bible and most compelling. She said, because it's not a rejection, a pretension that there is no suffering or just buck up and deal with it. It's not a withdrawal from the suffering. And then the third one, she said, what we have in the Bible is somebody who engages in the midst of the suffering. And she said, I think that is the most compelling answer. And I think that's what we have in scripture. It's a challenge to God. Okay, God, you created this extraordinary world, but what about suffering? What about pain? Where are you? And especially when we suffer in a way that we don't deserve, we deserve better. And you know the answer that Job got. Because what happens to him 
is that God does show up. Isn't that amazing? Job gets an audience, and that's what he wants. He gets a hearing from God. God shows up. God comes to him. And um, when he comes, how does he do it? He simply overwhelms Job. He comes in this amazing, astonishing wind, wouldn't you know it? Because actually, Job was kind of funny, these humorous moments. He said, yep, I bet if God shows up, he'll come in a big, strong wind and blow things away. And how does God show up? Big, strong wind blows everything away. And Job's like, yep, I knew it. But in the midst of that, God begins to speak. And he poses questions back to Job. Where were you when? When I created all of this, where were you? And so what he does is he refocuses the attention of Job. And he simply helps Job to realize it's not all about me and my suffering. It's not all about me. There's more that I understand. And God is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now he sounds, does God, more and more like a parent. There are things I just can't explain to you. And even if I wanted to, I don't think you would understand. You know, we have a cat. We have a couple cats. One of them is afraid of storms. And uh, he'll go and hide. Parker will go and hide somewhere under a bed in a closet, wherever he can go. He'll try to crawl under the couch, even though he doesn't fit and get stuck. And you can see the rear end sticking out. And um, you're just looking like you want to grab the tail and pull him out. But he's afraid. Well, there's no way you can explain to, uh, to Parker the cat that the storm isn't really going to hurt him. He's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. It's going to pass and things will change. There's no way to explain that to him. But if I were to become a cat, do you think I might have a better chance? You see, unfortunately, I don't speak cat and I can't understand catness. But if I could become a cat, I would have a better chance of explaining to him if I wanted to what's really happening and what's going on if I had the understanding of a human being and brought that to his understanding. If only we could do that. Well, we're not quite at that point. That remains for Jesus. But I think on a preliminary basis, God is giving Job an answer. So what does Job get? Well, the first thing he gets is an appearance, an audience from God. How many people get that? Well, that is the testimony of scripture that God has given us signs. Even if we want more, he has given us signs on a preliminary basis. How many of you wear, uh, wear a wedding ring? And how many of you had engagement rings? So that engagement ring was a promise for something yet to come? Well, I think Job gets a preliminary promise. And in a sense, so do we do, so do we. We get the sign, the ultimate sign, God's decisive answer is Jesus, whom he raised from the dead to say, it's not over, death will not have the last word or the final say, life will, I'm not finished. So what we learn is, like the, the engagement ring, there's a promise, more is on the way, the best is yet to come, God is not finished. But Job is not left with nothing. So what does he get? Well, as I look at the letter to Job, the book of Job, what Job gets is a visit from God. What he gets is not an explanation, not an apology, not all the answers that he could want, but he's simply overwhelmed by God, who challenges him, say, Job, wake up, man. It's not all about you. But then God also says, God is not unwilling to listen to the questions. He doesn't even, um, he's not angry with Job about that at all. 
He doesn't walk away, does God, from those hard questions. And he actually, it's as if to say, well, Job, you're on track. When Job says, I don't deserve this, I deserve better, God doesn't really disagree with him. He just said, Job, where were you when I started all of this? He never gives Job a very clear or satisfactory answer. Those of you who have read Job, were you satisfied with the answer that he got from God? It's, it leaves us wanting more. It's something, but it leaves us waiting for a little bit more. It's kind of like that engagement ring. It's like, yeah, but I want more. I can't wait to my wedding day and the consummation of the promises and the fulfillment that we've been looking forward to. And that remains yet for us to inherit through Jesus Christ and what is yet to come for the age ahead, for life eternal in the presence of the kingdom. So what does Job get? Well, he gets comfort. He gets a visitation from God. He gets an audience with God. God doesn't reject him. God listens to him. And what an extraordinary, extraordinary that thing is, um, event and understanding that is for Job. So what does Job get? He gets a God who gets him, who will entertain the questions and isn't put off by the hard questions. If you want to shout, how many of you have ever shouted at God? Can you be honest about that? Oh, well, then you're not angry enough yet. Have you really gone out and shouted at God? Well, Job is one of those people, in him we find our voice. Lord, it's not right. What happened in Ukraine? What's going on there? Are you Valdi or Highland Park? It's not right. It's not. And I think God recognizes some responsibility and complicity for this. This is the world he created. But on the other hand, I don't deserve the beauty of a daylily either. And God who has created beauty untold, it's everywhere. All oh, the profligacy of God who just fills the world with beauty even if there's no one there to witness it or to see it. Go into the wilderness, walk down a path, walk through the wild flowers that no one may ever see. Amazing what God has done. Look at the new telescope and what can be seen now? Things we never thought we would be able to visualize or witness. Extraordinary, the artistic expression of our God. Who deserves that? Not I, not us, we don't. And yet, God has made it evident and available to us. So, what are you gonna do? Will you look at the undeserved suffering? And that is a real challenge. But the challenge of God is to look beyond that. And by coming to Job, I think he gives us something really, really critically, seriously important. That he takes you seriously. It's personal with God too. He takes your suffering, especially the undeserved suffering, seriously. And he doesn't walk away from it. He comes to Job and says, look, I'm here. I'm with you. Take comfort in this. I'm not yet finished. There's more. What do you think about that? Do we have something? Oh, yeah. Can you take it to the bank? Not exactly. Is it negotiable? I think so. But it's not always immediately and readily apparent. What do we hear from Job? Well, I love Job's confession, or shall I say, profession of faith. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He never backs down from that for a second. He does challenge God. And what does he get? Not, every an not the answers he's looking for, not an explanation, but he does get God. We get a God who gets us. And in return, 
we get God. But the one thing that we have to do is allow God to be God. We have to allow him the freedom to be himself because we are not God. There is a relationship, but it is not between equals. Job, I'll listen to you, but I'm not going to explain myself, nor will I apologize. But know this, I will move on your behalf. That's what we get from God. I promise, not I, but the scriptures. This is a God who promises, Emmanuel, that we will never be alone. Is that enough for you? Well, one of my professors in seminary used to say, the question isn't what to be afraid of. The question is, what can we hope for in this age and the next? So what are you hoping for? I know. Can you say it with me? I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job knew it. I met a man, in spite of the loss of his wife in hospice, who said, in spite of all this, the injustice of the world, I still say my prayers. I'm pretty sure that's why you all are here, because you haven't given up on God. Know this, neither has he given up on the world or on you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in the midst of our world, you come to us. You don't always give us what we ask. You don't always explain yourself. But you do give us what we desperately need. And you come to us in seasons of loss and deep need. We are not alone. We are not victims. You allow us to have our say, to empty our guns, to say, Lord, where were you? Why didn't you? And when it's all over and said and done, sometimes you just wrap us up like a warm and sensitive father, like a warm and sensitive, compassionate mother. You just wrap us up and say, here, here, it's going to be all right. I love you. I love you. I love you. It's going to be all right. Grant that we might find and take comfort in that. For this age and in the age to come, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.